I think the best place to start is just taking a step outside your front door. And that may be walking for 10 minutes around your block. And you may start walking for 20 minutes and then 30 minutes, or maybe you're able to run right from the get-go. But I think it's just having a plan and working that plan and starting small and then making improvements and adjustments. But most importantly, it's having fun. You're only gonna continue to be active if you're doing something that you love and truly enjoy. So I think it's important whether that's walking or running or cycling or swimming or doing CrossFit. It's, it's find what you love because that's when you'll continue to stick with it. Welcome to the Driver Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned performance coach to founder CEOs and avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Kyle Robidoux. Kyle is an avid skier, runner, local beer enthusiast, and nonprofit manager who has worked tirelessly to ensure that he is not defined by the boundaries that others place on him and his vision. Born in Massachusetts and raised in Maine, Kyle was diagnosed at age 11 with retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, a degenerative eye disease that first affects your night vision and often leads to complete blindness. He was declared legally blind at 19. His decreasing vision is far from the only obstacle he has had to battle through throughout his life. He has struggled with binge eating for much of his life, and in 2010 was close to 250 pounds and having a hard time playing with his young daughter. This provided him the motivation to take up running. It first started as a walk. Now, Kyle has now completed over 25 marathons and ultramarathons, including five Boston marathons and three 100-mile races. In the summer of 2018, Kyle, with the support of his sighted guides, completed the grueling six-day 120-mile Trans-Rockies run, which includes over 23,000 feet of elevation gain. He's also focused his professional career on building community and works as a director at the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. In this interview, we get into the impact his eye disease had on his youth, his experience as a blind father, the inspiration to take up running, and all things training and ultra-running. And so, without further ado, my interview with Kyle Robidoux. Thanks for coming on the show, Kyle. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for extending the invite and starting the conversation. How have you had to adjust your daily life with the whole pandemic situation? I think working from home has obviously been the biggest change. I didn't do that a whole lot prior to it, so both you know, getting technology and computers set up and just the daily routine and, you know, making three meals a, a day instead of uh, one or two has been a big change. Yeah. Has it been a, like a big adjustment for you to, to work from home or have you like, do you like it or? It's an interesting question. I think I'm, I mean, I've managed and I'm efficient and I've learned how to be a bit more efficient as the weeks go on, but I'm social. So I think, and I also 
enjoy bouncing ideas off of people and the collaborative nature of the work that I've always done. So I feel like that's more challenging to do because you can't just, you know, walk outside your office and walk into someone else's office and ask them a quick question. Right, right. And how about on the training side? That's been huge. I mean, I stopped running with sighted guides probably six weeks ago or five weeks ago, which then relegated me to either my treadmill or the track, which is less than a quarter mile from my house. So I can get there safely and mm-hmm. for the most part run on the track by myself. But it's just boring running circles yeah. for hours. <laughs> and, you know, the treadmill is efficient and especially for hill climbing i've been enjoying that but you know anything longer than 10 to 20 miles on the track is just you know physically damaging and mentally challenging yeah yeah i can i I can't even imagine what it must be like to run over 10 miles on a track just in circles over and over again yeah i think my peak was i did 41 five weeks ago and you know mentally it's one thing and i'm used to having to engage and fire, you know, mentally and keep and be mindful of passing the time. But I was actually really surprised just the the physical nature of it. You know, I switched directions every couple hours, but my hips were just toast probably like two or three hours in, um, you know, just from the tight turns. So that's been a big adjustment. Got it. Is it, is it the, it's the turns that's making the big difference? I assume so just running in circles for that long, Mm -hmm. you know, I think even the subtle, you know, turns are different than just running, you know, a couple miles straight and then maybe making a bunch of, you know, switchbacks and things of that nature. I think just think the constant, um, you know, routine of it is, is makes a big difference. Right. And why, why do you do the 41 miles on that one day? Was that like a virtual challenge that you did or was Because this... I'm an idiot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was for, I think that was the weekend of a uh, hundred miler that I had that was canceled. So okay. that was a, an attempt to take advantage of some of my fitness that went into that training block. Cause I kind of trained almost right up to the time of the, of the race. So I had a full training cycle with almost a natural taper. So I figured why not just go out there this weekend and, and see how long I can run for. Wow. Was it, was the goal just to see how far you can run and then I guess stop or did you, I initially had told my family that I was going to run for 12 hours, kind of seven to seven. And whatever mileage I got from that would be fine. I kind of in the back of my head would like, Ooh, I'd like to run 65 miles because that would have been kind of like a time PR for me. Mm -hmm. But I made it, I think eight hours, I called it. Um, Partly because my ankle was trashed and my hips were trashed. Yeah. Yeah. So 40 miles on a track, I feel like it's still a pretty solid effort. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and I was going to ask if there was a race that you're really looking forward to to doing this spring or summer, uh, but got postponed or canceled. Was it that? Was it that hundred miler? Yeah, all of my races, um, for the most part, you know, the the hundred miler in Umstead in April was my my goal race. So really looking forward to running in North Carolina, 
And then I was invited to go out and run the Miwok 100K for their, as part of their 25th anniversary. And one of my bucket list goals has always been to run in the headlands, the Marin headlands in San Francisco. And that's okay. where, where Miwok runs. So I was super excited to go out there. I have a couple friends, you know, that live in San Francisco that I was going to see and uh, recruited a bunch of amazing guides. So um, those were probably the two biggest races that I was looking forward to this year. Got it. And do you know if they got, are they postponed or are they canceled for this year? And then it's just next year. Yeah. So both. Yeah. All three. So Umstead, Miwok, and then Vermont 100 that I was signed up for in July have all been canceled until 2021. And I'm, signed up for the Boston Marathon, which was pushed back, as I'm sure you know, to September. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. Wow, that's, uh, that's brutal. Well, let's, let's bring it back to the, to the beginning here. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Sanford, Maine, which is the southern part of Maine. Got it. Okay. I, went to, I actually went to high school uh, in southern Maine, too. At a, at a private school called Berwick Academy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with that school. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right next to, yeah, so Sanford is right next to the Berwicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you played a lot of sports growing up, right? I did. I played pretty much, if there was a ball there, I played it. So in different points of time, baseball, football, soccer, stopped playing basketball in seventh grade and played uh, tennis a bunch, but just recreationally, never as a sport because it conflicted with baseball. Got it. And at what age did you begin to notice changes in your vision? I didn't notice any change until I was diagnosed at age 11. Oh, wow. And then... Was it just like a routine eye exam? It was. It was a routine eye exam with just my regular optometrist. And at the end of the appointment, he kind of pulled my parents aside and said, hey, I think something is going on. I'm going to refer you all to a specialist in Maine, in Portland. And the specialists in Portland took a look at it and said, we're not equipped to deal with this. This is what we think the diagnosis is. And we're referring you all to Mass Ioneer in Boston. Wow. And so um, remind me again what the disease is called. It's called retinitis pigmentosa and RP for short. Okay. And does, or did your family or does your family have a history of eye disease? They do not. It is a hereditary eye disease, but there's no history on the family side. So I was awful in biology, Um, (laughs) but I think it's like, so both my parents were like, carried recessive genes so it was maybe not one in a thousand maybe even greater than that um a chance that they would have a kid you know who had rp and obviously because it was a recessive gene they had no idea that they were carriers interesting okay and when when you did begin to notice the changes in your vision was it initially like blurriness or was it like a like a tunnel vision at first that was getting smaller For many years, the biggest impact, so probably 11 to 25 years of age, the biggest impact was night vision. So I've never really been able to see at night or in dimly lit areas. 
Uh, and actually when I was 16 and up to get my driver's license, I actually could have passed the driver, the driving tests, hmm. um, because my peripheral vision, uh, was still, uh, wide enough or unaffected at that time. And then at the age of 19, I was declared legally blind, which is kind of like a procedural, uh, process. And that's when my peripheral vision was less than a 20% field. And it's just continued to shrink. Got it. And as a kid that young, what was your reaction when you got the diagnosis? It was traumatic. I tell the story often that I remember being in the car with my dad and we went to this baseball field where I used to play Little League Baseball and we just sat in the car and my dad cried, which was probably at that time the first time I'd seen my dad cry and probably only one of two times that I've seen him since. Um, and, you know, I, I adored both my parents and my father as well. And, you know, I think we, we didn't talk a lot about it and even in that car. So as an 11 year old who was very impressionable, I think that's how I internalized how I dealt with it is essentially by not dealing with it and not talking about it per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on your, in your bio, on your website, it mentions, it does mention that you basically ignored your eye condition for the first 10 years after the diagnosis and spent most of the next most of the next 10 depressed and angry at your vision loss realizing it's especially hard for someone as young as you were at that age to deal with something like that do you think if you would have maybe accepted your condition more than than you wouldn't then you would have been less depressed or angry i think looking back the short answer to that is yes but i also realize that, you know, my parents did the best that they could in adjusting to the news and how to handle it. And by all means, looking back, if I had the opportunity to talk about it more, also meet more individuals who are blind or visually impaired or had RP and could, you know, as a peer level and share some of my frustrations, but also help plan for the future. I certainly think that would been been helpful. Um, but it's easy to look back on things like that and, and right. learn what you would or would not have changed. Mm -hmm. And how many years left of, uh, I guess, ball sports for, I guess, lack of a, a better term, did you have where you could effectively participate after you got the diagnosis? Yes, I continued playing sports through the end of high school. And, you know, it impacted me a little bit. You know, I was an average, maybe above average athlete, and who knows how things would have changed if my eyesight didn't impact it. But it was it was fine for the most part. I switched from football to soccer, partly because it was becoming more challenging to kind of track the football at night games. Mm. And I think baseball, baseball, I think was more of a safety issue, particularly batting, and making sure that I could always see the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand. But I, I may do, and, you know, I, I enjoyed and still enjoyed, you know, playing sports, but I think through that process, because I wasn't overly impacted, I think that when the time came that things were being, what I thought were being taken away from me, like baseball, when I was in my 20s playing, you know, recreational, you know, uh, company sports, you know, and I 
had to stop playing baseball or softball. I was unprepared for the mental side of how to cope with that change. Okay. And so it wasn't until maybe, maybe college that like schoolwork and stuff like that would have been impacted. Yeah. Thankfully through college, my schoolwork was not impacted. I was okay. immediately referred to kind of my colleges like this disability program, but you know, it's and even my work on a day-to-day basis right now isn't overly impacted by my vision. But I think, you know, getting around a college campus at night was a big change. And also socially, you know, going out to restaurants and bars and clubs at night. Those are the things that were impacting me at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And did you look for inspiration from other visually impaired athletes when, I guess, when you're initially going through all of this or not really? I didn't. I mean, I did. My parents were helped. They connected me. I wanted to be a broadcaster growing up, like a baseball sports broadcaster. So there was this guy, Don Wardlow, who was blind and he was a double A announcer for the Red Sox system. So I do remember connecting with him over the phone and he was gracious with his time. And we chatted, you know, once or twice a month for a number of months. And, you know, I peppered him with questions around how he adjusts and adapts to being a broadcaster without any vision. Um, so that was helpful in going into college. I remained committed to you know this broadcasting track that I was on, but I did not meet anyone else on a social level who was blind or visually impaired until I started working where I work now six years ago. So I had no network of anyone who was blind or visually impaired up until I started, you know, up until six years ago. And I own some of that decision. Like I never sought out, uh, I mean, I didn't know of athletes who were blind or visually impaired partly because I didn't even know anyone else who was blind or visually impaired. Right. Right. That makes sense. Shifting gears here a little, uh, did the hereditary nature of eye disease weigh on your decision on whether or not to have kids? It did for many years. I, did not want to have kids because I thought, again, going back to being an awful biology student, I thought it was guaranteed that I would pass on my eye disease. And for me, I just wanted to nip it in the bud and essentially end it. And I didn't want to have kids because of that. And then, you know, my daughter is now 12. So probably 14 or 15 years ago, we are in a, you know, every other year I go for an extensive eye exam at Mass Eye and Ear and in that debriefing it came up about kids and passing genes along and the doctors would always invite my now wife into like that last like debriefing session to kind of tell me what has changed and this and that so I asked that question or it came up and they're like no no you should be fine as long as your wife is not a carrier you know she kind of looked at me and smiled and we joked about it um mm -hmm. so you know we both at that time, I don't think we're overly eager to have kids, but we weren't not eager to have it except for my decision or my thoughts around the hereditary nature of my eye disease. So that was big news for me and mm -hmm. obviously uh, exciting how it played out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so how has the journey of being a father been for you so far? It's great. I 
honestly really enjoy it. It's, you know, the best gig I have in terms of work, running and parenting and that sort of stuff. And my daughter is wonderful and she's incredibly supportive. And, you know, I talk to folks a lot about the balancing act with my daughter in being a parent who, you know, has vision loss and essentially a disability that I want her to be more aware of people with disabilities and obviously more compassionate but I also want to balance making sure that she doesn't always feel obligated to kind of help me or be a guide for me. Like, I don't want her to feel like that overwhelming sense of responsibility. So it's a, for me, it's a, a balancing act and how I pull those two things off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also on your website, it says that in 2010, you were close to uh, 250 pounds heading towards the path of type two diabetes and having a hard time playing with your daughter was the, I guess, depression you experienced the main driver that kind of you think led you down that towards that unhealthy path. I think because I had convinced myself incorrectly that I could no longer be active because of my vision loss. Like I wasn't exercising, I wasn't skiing much and I've always had issues with food and food addiction. And I just, I ballooned up and put on a ton of weight and I was just, I would get tired playing with her or it was hard for me to tie my shoes. And I knew at that point that something had to change. Mm -hmm. And and why do you think you, uh, I guess, convince yourself that you can, you can be active anymore? Like what do you think it was just kind of, your age at that time that you were kind of really young or what do you, what do you think? During that, during that time, my vision definitely was changing slightly more rapidly than had in the past to the point where I felt it was not safe for me to ski as much as I love to ski or ski as hard as I love to ski. And I, thought that I couldn't run outside because I was tripping and falling. And I think that's, and I use depression a little lightly. I mean, I certainly was depressed, but I, it wasn't a severe case of depression. I think it was actually probably more anger and bitterness that I had around Mm -hmm. these things that I loved to do what I thought they were being taken away from me. I realized years later through therapy and meeting other folks who are in similar situations and support from my family that I was just giving up on those activities. They weren't necessarily being taken away from me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, and you mentioned the binge eating, uh, issues as well. Can you maybe describe what this, what binge eating looked like for you? It's still a constant struggle, one that I just started actually meeting with a behavioral health specialist over the past six months. So I think part of it is portion control for me. Part of it is the social emotional connection I have to food. And it's really hard for me just to eat for one person. And also whenever there is food around, whether it's a buffet or second helpings, it's incredibly difficult for me not to take advantage of those opportunities. Interesting. And this has been something you've kind of always struggled with. 
Yes. I mean, that's a big reason why my weight was, you know, 250, 260 right. pounds right. and my cholesterol was off the charts. And obviously the family history of type two diabetes is a result of that as well. Got it. And all of this led you to discovering running, right? It was one of the motivations for starting to be active and, and run. But what I've also learned and am starting to explore more in just the past six months or so is, you know, running is a great way for me to monitor, you know, my eating and my weight. But at a, at a point, it almost masks the underlying issues because as long as I'm running and exercising, I eat better and I'm also maintaining the weight that I want to be at through exercise. But what I need to learn how to do is to keep my eating in a healthy check during the times in which I'm not exercising or running because, you know, I'm not going to be able to run 60 to 80 miles every week for the rest of my life. Right, right. And so when and why did you decide to start running? I knew that I needed a change and a lifestyle change. And I didn't want to start taking medication at the age of 31 for my cholesterol. And seeing my father having type 2 diabetes was the motivation that I needed to, to start exercising and taking a little bit more responsibility over my weight. And on a practical level, I also, like we discussed, was getting tired playing with my daughter, who was only two at the time. And I knew that if I wanted to keep up with her as she got older, I would need to change something. Right. Okay. And how, how did that timeline of progression look from when you first start running to now competing in ultras? When I, I actually first started walking and for like five or 10 minutes, and then I ran for a minute or two. And back then my training or my runs, I wasn't necessarily training. I was just running. was based more on time. I, you know, I tried to increase my longest run every week by like five or 10 minutes. So if I ran 30 minutes one day, the following week, I'd try to run 35 or 40 minutes. I never really tracked my mileage back then it was more strictly for fitness and getting in shape and quite honestly losing weight and mm. now i'll see i train a lot more i'm more regimented in plans and what my weekly volume is like and how to rest and how to taper and how to take days off and my mileage hovers between 60 to 80 miles depending on what I'm training for, or if I have a race on the calendar. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of weekly miles. It is. It's a part-time job at times. You know, I'm not the world's fastest runner. I'm kind of a mid packer. So if I'm looking at 60 to 80, hour, 80 miles, it's sometimes, you know, t roughly 20 hours of getting outside and running for me. Mm -hmm. And so how much weight have you lost since you started running? Out of the gate, I lost about 69 pounds. And outside of this past fall, where I had a bunch of stuff just going on with family and health-wise, uh, I put on a bunch of weight. But outside of that, I've been within a 
like a 10 pound marker. Like I think my lowest I got down to was like 180 or 181. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably around 192 or 191 right now. Uh, so I'm still kind of coming back from ballooning up in the fall. But outside of that, I've been really good at maintaining, you know, my fitness. That's awesome. Do you have a goal weight in mind? It usually is right around 185. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good weight for me. And I've also been trying to work more on not using my weight. You know, a lot of folks say, oh, your weight shouldn't be a marker for your overall health. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But knowing what my weight is or weighing myself a couple times a week allows me to kind of know where I'm at. So it's a really helpful uh, like very practical marker in terms of my eating, not necessarily my exercising and my body image and what my weight may or may not be. Got it. And do you enjoy running as a way to work out? I do. I do because it's simple. It's for the most part, putting on a pair of shoes, getting outside, obviously as my site has changed, I'm running with sighted guides more frequently. So there's a layer of logistics that are now part of me running. And sometimes I get very frustrated with that, but mm-hmm. I'm also able to quickly pivot and know if I want to do this, then this is what. Right. And, and did you say that's what's required? For the most part, like I mentioned, I'm able mm-hmm. to run on the track by myself because of more people being at the track over the past six weeks, there's probably been two or three times when I've left the track mid-workout just because there's so many people there and I don't feel comfortable running by myself because I don't want to run into anyone. Or, you know, there's more small kids riding their bikes on the track and I just don't want to hit a small kid while I'm running. So I've been able to adapt and I still can, you know, run solo but in terms of trail running and ultra running that is my passion i can't run trails without sighted guides Mm -hmm. right and that's maybe due to a lot of the the turns and the the rocks and the uh i don't know just general terrain yes yeah i need someone to call out where the dips are in the dirt and the trails and where the rocks are where the roots are and also turns so this past weekend, we actually went to our local trails uh, really, really early before the crowds. And my wife actually ran and my daughter and I hiked and just went out for a walk. And she was great. And it was a very runnable, uh, non-technical trail. But I still needed some cues here and there when there are some rocks in the path or there are some mud puddles that she helped me get around. Interesting. And so how does that like look are they like would the the guide be like like a few steps ahead and they would call out say i don't know big rock on the the right or or something like that and then that would be your cue to step over is is that sort of how it might work yes for road running most but not all most runners who are blind and visually impaired we run side by side with our guides on road running okay and we're usually connected with a tether, like a soft piece of cloth. And they call out, step up, one, two, three, three, I step up. And then they pull me 
or encourage me to go the opposite way when we have to turn. But in trail running, I run a couple feet behind my guides. And as they call things out, they're going over them. So if they say big rock, I know in like two strides, I have to pick up my feet to get over this big rock or route. Okay. Okay. And, you know, as my, and I can do that because I have some usable vision right now in which I can usually follow my guide on a trail. I can stay right behind them. But as my vision decreases, I will have to transition back to running side by side with my guide and using a tether to make sure that I stay on the trail. So that technique will change a little bit as my vision continues to decrease. I see. Okay. And when did the moment come for you to use running as a platform to raise awareness about disabilities and inclusion? It definitely wasn't planned, but I think it started to happen as I started to run more frequently and take on greater distances. There's a ton of runners who are blind or visually impaired who do marathons, and we all kind of accept that responsibility to help raise awareness. But I think things started to change a little bit when I started running trails and started doing longer distances like ultra races. And Mm -hmm. there are a number of runners who are blind and visually impaired, some incredibly talented and super fast runners who are running trails, running ultra marathons. But I think because there's fewer of us running trails and ultras, we each kind of take on a level of awareness and leadership by just doing what we do. Right. And, and these are like the, the 50 milers and the 100 miler trail races they are kind of referring to. Yes. Yeah. I've done everything from 50 milers to hundred milers to the trans Rockies, 120 mile, six day stage race that was ran through the Colorado Rockies. Oh, cool. Is that, so walk me through kind of what what that experience was like and what each day was. Was it like, was each day, was the mileage split evenly across each day? No, the mileage actually went up and down a lot. I And I assume, although I don't know, but I'm trying to, you know, some days were 13 miles, but like there was a 13 mile day, but we hiked up and over Hope Pass. So we got to 12,000 feet of elevation gain. Oh, wow. Or of altitude. So I think because that was a huge climbing day, the overall mileage was shorter and it almost, but may not have been perfectly mirrored. Kind of you have one hard day and then maybe a lower mileage day the next day. Got it. Okay. And normally what does your weekly training schedule look like? I tend to run five days a week. I take one complete day off of rest. And then the other day I do some sort of probably not cross training, but stretching and uh, exercise, strengthening uh, exercises and so forth. And so I tend to run Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, which could be between five to 10 miles. I try to get in one speed workout in one intentional hill workout. And then 
I do longer runs anywhere, depending on the cycle, you know, 10 to 30 miles on Saturday and Sundays. Got it. And I was going to ask if there are like any other activities or exercise exercises they like to do to, uh, to, to work out like in those, those cross training days. Cross training is probably my biggest weakness overall in terms of my fitness and my training. I would love to, like I grew up in the ocean and water skiing, so I love to swim, but it's just hard to either get a pool membership or get motivated to like walk to a pool and plan for my workday around swimming. Whereas it's just easier to do while running, right? You just get up in the morning, you run and then you're done with it or vice versa. So right. um, I don't do a whole, I don't do a whole lot of cross training. Got it. And what does your kind of like those non run exercise days look like for you? Is it like weights? Is it doing like some body weight stuff? I don't use weights, but I do a lot of, and I try, I'm actually doing more and more core work uh, right now. And then I do a lot of circuits of like lunges, uh, donkey kicks. Mm-hmm. There's this guy, David Roach, who is a great coach. He has this whole uh, like mountain runner legs workout. So it's, you know, it's lunges, it's squats. It's that exercise where like you put your foot up on a, on like behind you on a chair and then you kind of do like a one-legged dip. Yep. And then, and then I also do like uh, stair step ups, you know, so place a foot on like the second stair and then kind of hike up it and, you know, really try to fire the glutes and your hips and not use your quads as much. Um, so I try to do those like that and core work two to three times a week. Got it. And do you find that that helps your overall fitness and running? Definitely. I've noticed a big change. I constantly try to work on, you know, my hips and my core. I think all of it just helps you strengthen, whether it's speed. If you're training for, you know, mountain legs and a lot of climbing, I think that inevitably is going to help you with some speed work. And I think, you know, the more that you can increase your foot turnover helps your hill climbing because you're able to not put as much pressure on your times and your splits hiking up a hill if you know that you have you know improved fitness and leg turnover when the trail becomes runnable and that's a huge thing for me particularly when trail running is that i often have to push really really hard on the sections that are runnable for me because i know if a trail becomes technical i'm just i have to slow down so it's almost a built-in governor for me in a sense Mm -hmm. And there have been some races where, you know, we'll come out of a, you know, single track technical section and pop off onto, you know, a wider double track or a dirt road. And I'll really push the pace to the point where I've passed people and I've heard people kind of mutter like, oh, he's going way too hard. He's going to burn out. But what they don't know is that maybe a mile or two up, if the trail becomes more technical, I'm going to have to walk. So I really need to take advantage of those sections that are runnable. Interesting. Okay. And so do you have like a goal pace or goal distance that you're working towards right now? Right now it's really about maintenance during this time. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I was training. I had a huge spring with two 100 milers and a hundred K and the Boston marathon. So for me right now, I'm just trying to, 
maintain that level of fitness. I have started to sign up or participate in some virtual races just for level of accountability. For me, having something on the schedule is helpful for those big runs. So my goal right now is to keep, you know, 30 to 50 miles and then twice a month, you know, do like a longer marathon or 30 mile run. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, right now I don't have anything on the calendar for the fall while also knowing outside of the marathon, but also knowing that who knows what the race season will look like in the fall. So I'm hoping just to, you know, stay, continue fitness, work on speed, work on some uh, core work right now and keep my overall mileage at a, at a good level. Got it. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And what was the first major uh, long distance race that you ran and what was that experience like for you? So my first ultra was the run around the lake. It was a 5k course around a lake about 30 minutes from Boston. And I signed up for it for two reasons. One, I wanted to train for something other than a marathon because marathon training was boring to me in terms of like the mileage and the routine. Okay. Uh, not necessarily my speed, right? You can always get faster. But for marathon training, you kind of cap out at like a 20-mile run on a Saturday and a six-mile run on Sunday. And that training schedule was just boring, so I wanted something different. <laughs> and I also signed up for this race because it was a runnable course, so 90% of it was on pavement with a little bit of crushed gravel, So and it was pretty flat. So I knew that the terrain wasn't going to impact me. And that was a 12-hour time to race. Got it. And did you complete it in the 12 hours? I did. So timed races like that are just based on the distance. So if you sign up for a 12-hour race, you can run five hours or you can run 12 hours. And whatever you get from oh, okay. is kind of what you get. But for me, and I think this is a was a great learning lesson, the training was exactly what I needed because every week – Essentially, I was pushing myself beyond what I'd done before. So Saturdays, I'd run like three hours on Saturday and two hours on Sunday. And I was like, wow, I've never done that before. This is a first for me. So it was challenging. And then like the following week, you do three hours and three hours. And I'm like, again, I've never done this before. So it totally engaged and motivated me to push my training. And the race itself, my only goal and my pinky promise to my daughter going into it was that I would run the entire 12 hours and I think I ran 11 hours and 50 minutes like you can't you have to complete a loop to get credit for it mm -hmm. so I stopped at 11:50 because there's no way I was going to run three miles in 10 minutes so uh essentially I ran the entire 12 hours and fulfilled my promise to my daughter which was awesome yeah, that's awesome. So, and how many miles was that? I did fifty-four point five, I think. Wow, that's awesome. And do you have a favorite race distance? That's a good question. I don't yet. I think partly because I've only run three or four hundred milers, so I'm not overly familiar and kind of with that distance quite yet. I'm still exploring it, but. You know, I, I do like 
to 50 mile distance right now because you know it's it's a 10 to 13 hour effort so you're certainly putting in a day's work but you're not i mean you're definitely physically trashed after a 50 miler but i feel like physiologically like my body just isn't drained as much as a hundred miler so it's a kind of a sweet spot distance i feel like where you know you're pushing it's definitely an ultra um but you're also not destroyed if you have to race one on a Saturday and be back at work on Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You know, there's not like for a hundred miler, right. You know, there's not a 50 miler. There's not sleep deprivation involved. And for the most part, you're keeping on top of your calories or you're able to eat shortly thereafter a 50 mile race where for me, for a hundred miler, obviously it's, you know, three or four days just before your sleep returns to normal. And then for me, it's almost like a two to three week window for it to get like my eating patterns and not necessarily my, like my, I physically feel strong enough to run, but I think like my body is so emotionally and physically drained that it's hard to be motivated to run. Yeah. I I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and for a hundred, for hundred milers, like it's a lot of people's goals are to finish like around 24 hours. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think 24 hours is like that, uh, noter it's like the, yeah, it's like a big milestone. If you can get sub 24 hours, which I've done once or twice, I think once. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're non elite, you're probably between that 22 to you know, whatever time it takes to finish one. And most races have a 30 hour cutoff, but some, depending on the difficulty in the climbing and all that will have a greater than 30 hour cutoff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can definitely imagine how that can have a really big physiological impact on kind of your, your body and your system. I did a, I did what this virtual challenge a couple weekends ago called the yeti ultra 24 hour challenge oh yeah 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 yep um oh so yeah you might be familiar with familiar with it but for people listening it's run five miles every four hours for 24 hours something i never i've never done before but you know even though i had the breaks it's kind of still just being up for 24 hours while still kind of running you know 30 30 something miles is the next day i was definitely very felt very off <laughs> even though my my legs felt okay exactly exactly yeah i feel like i mean i still tell everyone that my legs from a physical standpoint are probably more trashed from a marathon than a hundred miler just because you're running at such a high high governor right you're you're almost you're not all out for a marathon but you're running really intense for three to four hours and just the pounding on pavement takes a tremendous toll on your legs. Whereas, you know, for most of us who are doing hundred milers, non-elites, you know, you're running, you're doing some walking, you're stopping at aid stations to eat. So there's, I mean, I'll say it's physically demanding, but I don't think it's as uh, trashing your legs as much I found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how about, how about for fun, like outside of work and running, you're a big craft beer enthusiast. Is that right? I am. Yeah. I love supporting, 
I, I, I call it supporting local businesses, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of local breweries and good beer and up in your neck of the woods, actually our friends of ours own a throwback brewery in Northampton. So yep. we've still managed to get our hands on some throwback beer. Every couple of weeks we have friends who drive up and pick some stuff up. And uh, yeah, I mean, I find there's a lot of similarities between the local craft beer scene and the running community in that you know they're passionate they're dedicated and they're really supportive of kind of that local micro uh, level of support that's so important in our communities if you know now if not always yeah yeah i've been to throwback a a couple times um i live like probably a 10 minute drive away from there (laughs) um yeah so um have you eaten there before i their food is also very good i mean i love their beer but i tell them you know the owners all the time and i think their food is amazing mm-hmm. and to get i think her, the chef is carrie i mean she was at i think like black trumpet or some really fancy portsmouth restaurant so to poach her and get her to come on board at throwback was a huge coup so i tell everyone if you're driving you know north to maine like always stop off at throwback not only for the beer but for the incredibly taste tasty food yeah yeah i would i would agree so what, what do you do for work? So for the past six years, I've been working at the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, which is based in Brookline, essentially Boston. And it serves, it works all throughout Massachusetts and it supports individuals who are experiencing vision loss. So it was a endeavor that I intentionally took on to kind of work with people who have shared lived experience that I do. And I help run work within our one-to-one volunteer program and then also do some community planning statewide efforts with them as well. And then I also am fortunate that uh, there's a website called United in Stride, which is mm-hmm. connects, connects guides and runners who are blind and visually impaired. So I run that website. So it's fun to me that I'm able to kind of work running into my day job. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's cool. And yeah, I was going to ask you that about, uh, United in stride. So it's, it's essentially, uh, like a database that connects, I guess, visually impaired, impaired runners with guides in, I guess, your local area. Exactly. We call it, we joke sometimes and call it, it's like a dating app for runners and guides. So one of the biggest issues that continues for one of the barriers for being fit and getting outside, and that may be just walking, right? It doesn't always have to be running. It could be just be walking or hiking, but it's the lack of guides or access to guides that is prohibitive to get people outside. So we wanted to create a platform that would connect individuals locally. And we also knew that throughout the state, actually the gentleman there was a couple organizations or people who had these long lists of guides. So if you're running the Boston Marathon, you'd actually contact my work and be like, hey, I need guides. Or there's this guy, Richard Hunter, out in Sacramento, California, and he also had a really long list of guides. And he's the one who founded United in Stride, partly to 
you know, decentralize the information and make it more accessible. So now it's in this platform and a website. So you sign up, you create a profile, and then whether you're a guide looking to meet a runner who's blind or visually impaired, or if you're a runner who's blind or visually impaired and you need guides, you create a profile and then you do a search via your zip code and it populates anyone who's within your zip code or you can set for 20 miles or 50 miles of your zip code. And then you can reach out to them directly, kind of like Facebook Messenger. Um, so it really puts kind of the ownership and the, and the information in individuals' hands instead of an organization. Got it. Okay, that's cool. And what's the the website if people listening want to want to go and check it out? Yeah, so it's simply unitedinstride.com and it's kind of set up all throughout this the country and Canada. And like I said, all you have to do is you create a profile and then you're able to reach out to someone directly and particularly in areas that are more rural there's always a need for guides, partly because you know, if you're a runner who's going to run five days a week, you essentially need a network of 10 guides because not everyone is going to be available every week. There's vacations, there's injuries. So, you know, now imagine 10 guides multiplied over, you know, the hundreds of folks who want to get outside and be active. So always looking to connect with more folks who are blind or visually impaired, but also always looking to recruit more guides and it's a great way to give back you know if you're already running five days a week it's pretty cool to like one of those runs you're essentially volunteering your time but still doing mm -hmm. what you would normally do and you know i tease i have some guides who are just blazing fast you know they're sub three hour marathoners so i joke with them like i run with them on their recovery day because <laughs> that that's the time in which we are at the same pace and everyone's got a recovery day, right? So if you're, you know, a 250 marathoner, there are going to be days where you run eight or nine minute miles. So that's a great day for you to run with, you know, someone and, and be a guide. And the flip side, you know, we also have some marathoners who are blind or visually impaired that are running, you know, 230 to 250 marathons. So they're always looking for guides because, you know, to train with, but also for race day. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. then. You know, and it's set up to support individuals who want to go out and walk or hike as well. So um, it's it's guides of all abilities and all skill levels are always needed. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, and what are some things that you do or uh, I guess or have figured out to kind of make things easier for you as you work in terms of in terms of like kind of writing emails and answering the phone and all of that? Mm -hmm. So. My vision right now, I'm down to about a 5% field of vision, but my corrected vision is right around 2040 with glasses on. Got so it. I've actually just started to think more about using like what we call excessive technology or adaptive technology, whether that's a screen reader that reads your emails aloud. Uh, I've certainly had to start increasing the fonts on all of my web-based platforms. So if I'm looking at email or reading the globe online, you know, my 
font right now needs to be around 16%. Uh, but I'm not on the regular using like a screen reader or a, a voiceover program right now, but I'm probably not too far off from there. So I've started to think more about training uh, mm -hmm. um, to learn those programs. I see. Okay. What's one thing that you really want to accomplish over the next uh, year or let's say two years because of the pandemic? So it's actually my background is in skiing. Growing up in Maine, I started skiing the same year that I was diagnosed with my eye disease. So uh, it's been a goal of mine and I'm hoping to do it this coming winter. So I've never skied either kind of backcountry or above the tree line in like bull skiing or, or things like that. So I'm hoping to figure out a way to get out to either California or Colorado this winter and do like a two or three day ski exposition where we're doing like all backcountry skiing. Oh, that, that'd be awesome. So would, are there like ski guides too? Yeah. So I've reached out to, yes, they're definitely ski guides. So I ski with two programs right now, um, Vermont Adaptive in, I'll say Vermont, and then the New England Healing and Skiing Association, which skis out of uh, Mount Sunapee in New Hampshire. So those are the two programs I ski with. And my ski guides are, they work the same way as my trail running. So they ski in front of me and then we communicate usually through a headset. Okay. So I've already started to do some exploring around like a backcountry ski trip. So I would essentially need like a traditional mountain guide to help us, to help keep us safe in terms of right. you know, avalanche, avalanches and things. But then I would need one or two very talented and skilled uh, guides to actually help me ski. Mm -hmm. Right. And what does your daily routine look like nowadays? And let's, let's do pre pandemic. So my day is pretty flexible. I'm usually start work seven 30 or 8am and I work until about four. There are some days that I run mid morning. So I'm very lucky to have a lot of flexibility at my work. So I may go out and run at 11am or I may come home and at four or five, try to get in a quick run either on the track or the treadmill. And then, you know, with my daughter who's now 12, it's making sure that her schoolwork and homework is done or helping get her to or from a practice that she's going to. And then, you know, the traditional meal prep and cleanup that every household and family has to manage. And right. hopefully by 8 p.m., 8.30, get my daughter to bed and then relaxing. Got it. And bringing this back to the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? I think my biggest driving force is hard work. Both of my parents worked very, very hard, put in a lot of hours. So I may not be the most talented athlete or the smartest employee, but I'm always going to work incredibly hard, whether that's getting tasks done at work or being structured and regimented on a, on a training plan and putting in the work that I need to show up on race day, ready to go. Awesome. And lastly, before we wrap this up, what would you like to leave the, the person listening who 
maybe really wants to get in better shape, but isn't sure, isn't sure where the best place to start is. I think the best place to start is just taking a step outside your front door. And that may be walking for 10 minutes around your block. And you may start walking for 20 minutes and then 30 minutes, or maybe you're able to run right from the get-go. But I think it's just having a plan and working that plan and starting small and then making improvements and adjustments. But most importantly, it's having fun. You're only going to continue to be active if you're doing something that you love and truly enjoy. So I think it's important, whether that's walking or running or cycling or swimming or doing CrossFit, it's, it's find what you love because that's when you'll continue to stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. I would completely agree with that. Cool. This has been awesome, Kyle. I really appreciate you, you coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me on and, and spreading awareness around this and, and doing, doing what you do. Yeah. Uh, so where can people go if they want to follow uh, what you're up to with, with running and everything else that you've got going on? So my website is just kylerobidu.com and it has some of my running, and but I'm also a public speaker. So you can reach out to me if you want to book me for companies or races, things like that. And then on Instagram, I am blind beer runner. And got Twitter it. is just Kyle R. Robidu. Awesome. And you all can also follow me on Instagram at ChaseRosa4 um, and also visit my website, ChaseRosa.com for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.